This morning we're going to begin a series in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. And, and for the next four weeks, David, Kelly, and I are going to be uh, preaching and teaching from John chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through about verse 18. Uh, we'll see where we land uh, as we get closer to Christmas Eve and Christmas, uh, our, to our Christmas Eve service there. Uh, so just know that uh, we are doing that in these uh, first four Sundays of Advent. You know, sometimes uh, because of just uh, who we are as, as Presbyterians and, and uh, just because we live in this world, uh, we lose sight of some of the uh, important things that uh, we can learn uh, from doing something like celebrating Advent. And so I was thinking this morning that, that maybe the first thing I ought to do is talk for just a second about what the, the real Christian purpose of Advent and the Advent season is. It is really the purpose of Advent is that we would prepare ourselves, that we would focus our attention on the reality that is described for us in this first chapter of the Gospel of John. It is for your spiritual benefit that we would take the time and that we would really and truly focus on what Jesus came to be and to do. The end of, uh, first, uh, in the end of verse 1 of John, uh, it says that the Word was God. And at the beginning of verse 14, again, John says this. He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I want you to take that as kind of the parentheses around your Advent season. As, as, you, as you think about December, as you think about the living nativity, as you think about worship Sunday by Sunday through the month of December, think about this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Everything we are, everything that we believe as Christians depends on Jesus Christ that Jesus is God, and that Jesus was man. Fully God, fully man. Everything that we believe depends on that reality. So even Christmas, as a Christmas festival, as a, as a, as a Christmas celebration, though it may not be taught in the Bible as a celebration, the Christian meaning given to Christmas is actually kind of the foundation of the Bible and what we believe. Christian meaning is given to Christmas as we think about these first 18 verses or so out of John's Gospel. You know, the goal of the Bible, the goal of God in becoming human, the goal of, of this Gospel are all the same, actually. And John himself sums it up as he wrote his Gospel. You know how John sums up his Gospel in John chapter 20? He says this, he said in verse 31 of John 20, he says, these things, in other words, this gospel that I am writing to you that you hold in your hand today, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ means Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. 
If our messages are going to be faithful to John's gospel, to John's purposes, our goal must be to help you see the gospel, believe that the Son of God is who he is so that you might have eternal life. So our prayer this Advent season is that the gospel will be more glorious, more beautiful, more evident than it's ever been before. That's why we're doing the living nativity. We want the world to understand that Christmas is about the life and birth, the birth, life, and death of a Savior and his resurrection proving the satisfaction of our Father. That's the direction you should pray for David and for myself as we pray and as we plan and as we prepare week by week to preach and to teach from the Word. I am going to be um, a pig this morning, and I'm going to read all 18 verses of the first section, and then we'll reread it uh, week by week over the next few weeks. But I feel like I'm taking advantage of my position as getting the first sermon out of the Gospel of John. So would you follow along with me as we uh, read the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, remembering this is God's holy and errant inspired word to us, and it's good for us. It's good for our faith and for our practice. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, is coming into the world, or was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you this morning that your Holy Spirit would help us to see Jesus, would help us to understand what it means that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that we would understand what it means that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Father, 
we know that it's only by your spirit that these truths will have importance to us. And so I ask that the wind of your spirit would blow through our hearts and minds today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to begin today with the first five verses. And we're literally going to take it a little bit at a time so that we can walk through this together. But I want you to get the point of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, the whole, the whole purpose of that. And I think that, that the best way I can make the point of those first five verses is actually to take them in reverse order, okay? Uh, I'm not dyslexic. Well, maybe I am, but um, we're going to do this from the bottom up instead of from the top down. Uh, we're going to think kind of like a Hebrew. You know, you know how the Hebrews, uh, how, how the, the Jewish people uh, wrote their, their languages, right? You know, we normally take a book and we look at a book this way and we start here and we work it from chapter one, you know, which is in the, in the front of our book, in the front of, they look at it this way. They start the front of their book on the back end of our book. So we're going to do that this morning with John's gospel. We're going to take John chapter one and we're going to pick, pick up in verse five and kind of try to work backwards through this. In verse 5, what does John say? Look at your Bible. Look at what he says. He says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of the translations say something like, have not understood it. But in one place where the, the Gospel of John uses the same kind of language, the same Greek word, um, John chapter 12, verse 35, uh, he, he translates it very much like we translate this here. Um, that walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. So what I'm saying to you is verse 5 is basically describing Jesus as the invincibility of light. Maybe, that's, maybe, that's, maybe that doesn't make sense to you. As light that is triumphant over darkness and that can't be defeated by darkness. It's not overcome. It's not overwhelmed. You, you could label verse 5, light is triumphant over darkness. On Wednesday night, our children and, and, uh, who are participating in the, the Wednesday night program are our, our children who are doing the Narnia group. One of their activities is that they are using uh, art to talk about darkness and light and so they're drawing and they're learning about the difference between darkness and light and using shadow and and that kind of thing and i think that's a wonderful thing that they're doing seeing light and seeing darkness and john is giving us a lesson in light and dark here in verse five why does he do that why does darkness not overcome the light how can we be sure that the light will go on and that will completely overcome the darkness that John's talking about here? How do you know that that's going to succeed? Okay, that's, that's the question I want you to think about for a minute. What, that's what verses 1 to 4 are written to answer. And verses 1 to 4 basically give us three reasons. Now, I tried to work out an outline for this morning's sermon because, you know, it's nice to be able to use that in the PowerPoint and I had points, and I had subpoints, and I had subpoints of the subpoints, and then I had additional points that go that didn't go with the subpoints, but we had points, and so just do the best you can. 
Okay, I've tried to delineate some of that for you in the PowerPoint here, but let me, let me just say this. John gives us three reasons in these four verses why the light's going to triumph over the darkness. And I broke them down into two big categories, but your sermon slides don't reflect those two big categories. Okay, so just know that. Okay, so for a moment, I want to talk about the conflict of light and darkness. Just the conflict of light and darkness. That's verse 5. And then I want to look at the four reasons. Okay, so there's, there's some logic to this. I'm not totally crazy or, or uh, schizophrenic or anything else like that. So the first idea that John presents to us in verse 5 is that the light shines in the darkness. He's talking about Jesus, okay? And he's talking about Jesus being the light that shines in in the darkness follow john's logic here he means that the word jesus jesus who is the word of god has become flesh jesus has come into a dark world and he is the light of the world john 8 chapter 12 jesus says of himself he says i am what the light of the world he makes that claim of himself right here in verse 9 the true light that enlightens every man was coming into the world he was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world knew him not he came to his own and his own people received him not jesus is the true light that has come into the world he's coming to the darkness he's the one who shines in the darkness the darkness of the world of evil and unbelief. The darkness of death and judgment. We love John 3.16, don't we? We love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Do you know what verse 19 in that paragraph has to say? Verse 19, in that favorite, favorite verse about the gospel, goes on and it says this. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The contrast. The struggle. The conflict between light and darkness. Darkness is the power of evil and unbelief. This makes a huge difference for us. So what verse 5 is saying is that Jesus, the light of the world, has entered into the darkness of evil and unbelief and lostness and death. And that darkness did not overcome Jesus. Y'all, that's what we celebrate. Jesus overcame the darkness on our behalf. The light triumphs over our darkness. The light shines in our darkness. John 12, 46. I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John 12, 36. You will ha while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. You see what Jesus is teaching us here in this gospel? And I know I'm, I'm, I'm weaving together a bunch of passages out of John's gospel here. When you believe in Jesus Christ, not only 
do you leave the darkness and enter the light you actually you actually become part of the family of light i love this passage because it has sentimental um meaning for me Uh, i was when i first came to christ i was led to christ um through a ministry of uh, the church that became my home church it was alta woods presbyterian church and it is no more but uh through that ministry we had a group of young people who formed a choir who toured around uh, the southeast and we were called the children of light ephesians 5 8 paul says it this way once you were darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of light children of light we're part of a family we are a child of jesus who is the light and we are to walk in him in such a way as to reflect that light if the light triumphs um, it, it, it makes a huge difference for the light to triumph over darkness verse 5 makes it clear it says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness what does it say has not overcome it jesus went to death and hell and was not overcome by sin and death and hell and darkness the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it the light will triumph jesus will triumph those who believe in him will triumph with jesus we are his children his family and we need to hear that today we need to remember that today in america darkness is gaining ground all around us isn't it it's it's not a rocket it's not rocket science to figure that out more and more often you read and you hear stories that that you think 10 years ago that wouldn't have even been been spoken by uh, the the most you know liberal or 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 outrageous soul on the planet i I opened i I was writing my sermon and I, i opened my um microsoft edge browser you know how your browser opens and you have all the news stories and that kind of thing that pop up on the front page of your browser well this one pop i'm writing my sermon i'm actually somewhere along just just above this idea and i opened my browser i don't know what i was searching for or reading or whatever but this was the on the front page this was an article in my microsoft news feed what does it mean what does it really mean to identify as pansexual all right let's just be honest 10 years ago you'd have never heard that word not sure that that word is actually a word that it's something that we it it was written by dr jen mann and i'm going to just give you a quote from this article just to give you an idea of what the corruption is going what kind of corruption we see in our world today how the darkness has grown here's the article just a paragraph when asked what if uh, what it means to be pansexual he said pansexuality is when you have no preference in gender you like what you like someone who identifies as pansexual is someone who has the capacity to form enduring sexual romantic and emotional attractions to those of any or all genders so how is this different from bisexuality well while being bisexual means you're attracted more and more to one gender 
being pansexual means you're attracted to people regardless of biological sex, gender, gender identity. Who in the world would have thought that we would be hearing and talking about those kinds of things 10 years ago? God created us male and female in his own image. The darkness of the world has consumed our thoughts. This, this has become the, 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 the spirit of our age. I didn't even read the whole article for you because the rest of it is just too horrendous. Here's what happens. When the discussion of gender roles and sexualities um, it, it is, is if, if that's not the spirit of our age today, I don't know what is. And when truth is divorced from morality, when the rights of individuals are separated from right and wrong, when we no longer have the standard of the word of God as that upon which we base our decisions, when we reach that point, when the only definition you have left for truth is the right of every individual to do as he pleases and to do what makes him feel comfortable or accepted, then we are in serious darkness. The darkness is growing. The end of that road is barbarism and anarchy and judgment. It's just that simple. We are moving as a culture quickly in that direction. Jesus Christ is the light that stands against that culture, but not just against, but that, but that draws those who are broken by that darkness and broken by that sin and those awful patterns, broken, draws them to himself with the gospel. Our task is to be light in a dark world that we might be attractive like Jesus to the world around us. We need to make the gospel known. I'll stake my life on the truth of John 1, 5. The sh light shines in the darkness. Jesus shines. The gospel shines. The church shines. The darkness will not overcome it. How can we be sure? I think Jesus gives us that assurance in these next few verses. And David, we should have sung Shine, Jesus, Shine um, this morning. Oh, yeah. I really don't like that song. I'm just going to tell you all now. Okay, that's out there. But it's okay. We can sing it. How can we be sure that the light's going to triumph? Three reasons. Follow my thinking. Follow my reasoning. The light, first of all, is the life of the Son of God. The light is the life of the Son. Look at verse 4. In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. That means that the light that shines in the darkness is the light of life. The life of the sun is the light of the world. The first reason the light will triumph over the darkness is that it's life. The light is life. What does that mean? If the life of the Son of God is the light that shines in the darkness, what verse 4 says, I think there are at least four things we can say about it. I told you I would have subpoints of my subpoints. 
the light has energy and power. When you turn on a light bulb, what do you have? You have energy. You have heat. You have electricity. You have power. Or you have a flame. You have heat. You have, you have, the, the life of the sun has energy and power. I backed out of my driveway this morning. And in my neighborhood, our, our mailboxes are mounted on lampposts on the end of our driveways. Someone had knocked off the light off the bottom of my, uh, uh, the top of my uh, lamppost. Or the wind, I don't, I don't know. I'm going to say the wind. Picked it up off the ground. It no longer has light or power. Just a secondary thing. No energy going to it. So I was able to pick it up and put it in the back seat of my truck. The light has energy and power. Secondly, the light of life is not like my lamppost in that it is not static. It has movement. It has motion. It, it is purposeful. It plans. It moves. It shines now in one place and it shines later here. It's alive with the life of the sun. I tried to think of a way to illustrate that idea to you. I love photography, okay? I have always just had this, this love for black and white photography, as a matter of fact. And, and not only just black and white photography, but large format black and white photography. So I, I, I love having a, a, I actually have a, or I think it's probably been um, given away. I actually at one point had one of those big cameras with the big bellows on the front of it and the whole nine yards. Used to take it in the dark room and used to teach people how to do uh, film developing and that kind of thing with one of those old style um, early cameras that uh, uh, has the big bellows on the front of it. I am a fan of the Ansel Adams F64 school. Okay, now maybe you just maybe I'm just talking. Uh, I may as well be speaking Greek or Aramaic or something to you that just doesn't make any sense. But I love the I love photography and and the the idea of of the way light works in a photograph. If you plan to take a picture, a photograph of a landscape, you, you need to plan when you're going to take that photograph. If you just light something with a photograph, okay, those of us who, now I use my cell phone camera a lot, but those of us who use cell phone cameras, we're notorious for this. We just snap a picture of this and snap a picture of that, and those pictures are frequently flat. When I look at them, I say, flat, you know, no dimension, no, no, no tonal value. I, I, look, I look at them and I go, well, that's a nice, you know, nice picture, but yeah, not so much. When you work with black and white, you've got to see dark and light, and you've got to see how the shadows work and how things play so that you have dimension, so that you have a feeling for, for what's actually taking place there. There is, a, there is an artistic element to that. A photo um, that doesn't take that into um, consideration doesn't show the nuance of the movement of the sun. I do really love Ansel Adams' work. I've learned a lot from his work in the fact. He, he takes light seriously. You look at Adams' pictures, by the way, and this is not an advertisement for Ansel Adams' photographs or anything else. He goes from blackest black to whitest white and almost every tone of gray all the way through. It's, they're beautiful. They're striking. They're breathtaking. 
his work in photography out west and landscapes is is amazing. Even his even his uh, work with uh, 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 people pictures is amazing. I say that because light moves. Light has purpose. And when we see the movement of the light, it means something. It's not static. Our Savior Jesus is not static. He has movement and, and purpose and plan. He has energy and power. And thirdly, he has a life. The light of life grows and expands. I look at those Ansel Adams landscapes, and I can, you can almost put yourself in the place where he's photographing. You can have a sense of dimension and, and sense of, of the enormity of what he is photographing there. I think that's the way the life of the Son of God is in some ways. He, his life is a fountain of life. Once those rays start coming out of the light of Jesus, they extend farther and farther and farther. The reign of the King Jesus is expanding and growing. The church of Jesus Christ must be expanding and growing. The gospel must be going out just like light goes out in a sun ray. We saw a pretty sunset last night as we were out um, a dove hunting yesterday. Uh, we, ought to, we ought to be like that kind of light that shines in the world and, and is the very life. The light's the life of the Son of God. So the first reason, or the fourth thing is that uh, the, uh, the light of life produces offspring. John twelve thirty six says this, says, Believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness does not overcome it because the light is living. The light's alive. It has energy. It has purpose. It has growth. It, it reproduces. It's not static. It's not like a stoplight. The light that shines in the world today is the very life of the Son of God. The life is the life of the creator of all things, too. Think about that for just a minute. Verse 3, all things were made through Jesus, and without Jesus was not anything made that was made. That's the way you can read that verse. It's legitimate. We're still talking about Jesus as the word that became flesh. He is the light of the world. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the point is this, simply, the energetic, purposeful, growing, reproductive life that shines, light that shines in the darkness is the life of none other than the one through the life life that shines in the light is the light of the creator let me be clear let me see if i can clarify we know that the powers of darkness are not as strong as this life that is the life that has come into this world as jesus the darkness is not as strong as the light. Without Jesus was not anything made that was made. No creator, created thing has more power than its creator. That's what John's telling us here. There's nothing created that has more power than the creator. That's what verse 3 is, is talking to us about. So there's always a skeptic. 
There's always some smart aleck, some, someone who's going to be an antagonist in some way, and they'll say, well, what about the atom bomb? I mean, isn't the bomb, atom bomb more powerful than the man who created it? Can't the bomb destroy its maker? Well, that's really not a fair comparison. The answer to that is there's an infinite difference between the two of them. On the one hand, making a bomb is making something out of materials that exist already that are controlled by the laws of the Creator to begin with, uh, laws that we did not write. On the other hand, creating um, out of nothing the very materials that the universe is made from and the laws that control them, that's a totally different thing. If you can make something out of nothing, you can always turn something into nothing. You get it? Therefore, the Creator always has the upper hand in the world. It's just that simple. He will triumph. He wins. He's the light that lives in us. We win. You need a biblical illustration? It's not too hard to come up with a biblical illustration of that idea. The powers of darkness know that this is true. When Jesus encountered the Gadarene demoniacs in Matthew chapter 8, what did the Gadarene demoniac cry out? What have you to do with us, O Son of God? How have you come here, or have you come here, to torment us before the time? They know that there is a time. And that their time is limited and that it's coming to an end. There is a time set for their destruction, for their everlasting consignment to hell, and they know that the light will triumph. The Creator always has the upper hand. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it because the light is the light of the energetic, purposeful, growing, reproducing life and second, because the life is the life through which everything has been made. Even the angelic powers that fell into darkness in the early days of creation, or before creation. Think about it. Think about it. This light and life is God. One last reason for why we can be sure the light will not be overcome by the darkness not only is the light a living light, not only is the life of this light the life of God's Word, whom he, through whom He created all things, but this Word, this life, is light, and it is, He is God. God Almighty cannot be overcome. So look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God means this. You almost think John's like doing doublespeak here or something. Like he's just trying to be you know, emphatic in some way. But that's not, not his point at all. The phrase, the Word was with God, means that they are distinct persons and can fellowship with one another. There are three persons in the Trinity in the Godhead. Okay? But when he says the word was God, he means that they are one God, not two. Okay? 
It's not, there's a unity in the Trinity. We hold fast to the biblical ministry of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there is such a unity in the Trinity that they are one. They are not two or three. They are one. And there's a distinction in their persons. We heard a Presbyterian exam, I referenced it, I think last week actually, where the fellow who was being examined was having difficult expressing the idea of the Trinity. It's a good, it's a good concept to get our hands around. But I want to be really practical this morning. I, w- I want to take it down to, to one last idea, and I put it this way. I want you to be of good cheer. Be of good cheer. What does all John 1, 1 to 5 mean for us? Here's the bottom line for us this morning, okay? If I can just kind of draw it all into a capsule and, and try to make all this fit together. The practical point is this. The light can't be overcome by the darkness because, number one, the light is alive. It's the light of life. Number two, through this life, this living word, all things are made. And number three, this living word is God. So let me read the whole text one more time. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So be of good cheer for this reason. Christ has overcome the world of darkness. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This Christmas season, indeed, This life that you live in Christ today, because of who Jesus is, allows us to not retreat from the darkness. But we need to take the offensive this season. Let's not be overwhelmed by the darkness of our world and our society. Let's raid the darkness because it cannot be overcome, or it it cannot overcome us. The children of light will not be overcome by the darkness. Oh, putting, you know, you hear the phrase, oh, they've taken Christ out of Christmas. Oh, no, they haven't. Oh, no, they haven't. Live, walk as children of light. Believe that the light in the light, that you may become the sons of light, as John 12 says. Let's pray. Father, I ask you this day that as we've thought about these opening words in John's gospel and as we've brushed through them today, that you would give us a new appreciation for all that Jesus has done. For indeed, the creator of the universe, the second person of the Trinity, 
has overcome the darkness of a fallen creation by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. He was the Word. He was God. He was with God. And we are His sons and daughters. Father, may we raid the darkness with the light of the Gospel. Lord, I pray that next week, that this week coming, and that in the weeks ahead, you would give us the opportunity to raid the darkness, that our living nativity would point to living in Jesus, to the living gospel, to the living light of the world. Oh Lord, thank you that the gospel is powerful, and that it changes that it embraces us, that you indeed have shown yourself strong and mighty. Go with us as we go into the world, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.